Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series entitled Christianity's Family Tree. In this series, we are exploring the different branches and denominations of the Christian Church. Join us now for the message, The Baptists, The Way of the Believer. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer and I am the senior pastor. And I'm Wesley McCall and I'm the music director. And we're really glad that you have joined us for worship this morning, particularly those who may be joining us for the first time. Now, a Baptist, a Methodist, and an Episcopalian walk into a Christmas party. Now, which one has more fun? For the answer to that question and other deep questions, just stay tuned for our message today, The Baptist, The Way of the Believer. It's part of our sermon series on Christianity's family tree. And so now let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with this centering psalm. From Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. Our opening prayer for this morning. Dear Lord God, as we gather this morning, remind us of the power of Holy Scripture, the strength of the Word of God, and the testimony of all the saints. Renew in us the spirit of our baptisms. And may we never cease in our efforts to purify your holy church. In Christ's name, amen. And though we cannot be together in the same place, we are together in the same time. So my prayer for you is peace be with you. Our prayer for illumination this morning. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. We have two scripture readings this morning, both from the epistles of Paul. The first is from Romans chapter 10. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they sent to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And our second reading comes from 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and carry out your ministry fully. The word of God for the people of God. In 1981, a new play premiered in a very small theater in Austin, Texas, and it purported to be a play about the third smallest town in the state of Texas, the town of Tuna, Texas, to be exact. And the name of that play was Greater Tuna. And what followed was a phenomenon of American theater. Within a year of its premiere down in Austin, Greater Tuna was debuting off-Broadway to rave reviews, and it was a, a piercingly perceptive and yet deeply affectionate satire of small town Texas life. And it is also, if you haven't seen their side splittingly laugh out loud, hilarious. The original play, Greater Tuna, morphed into a quartet of plays in which the two original actors, uh, Jaston Williams and Joe Sears, they portrayed roughly two dozen different residents of Tuna, Texas, both male and female. And so this required dozens of quick change uh, costume changes in a single performance. And you multiply that by first hundreds and then thousands of performances. And the actor, Jaston Williams, had to seek treatment for a type of foot tendonitis that is generally only seen in women who frequently wear high heels. The story of this rapid rise is told on Williams' website, and here's an excerpt from that. The production turned into a Cinderella story, where two critics from New York who were in town dropped in on that first show in Austin and loved it. One day you're wondering whether the $300 a month rent is coming from, or where the $300 a month rent is coming from, Williams said. The next day, Variety gives you a rave and the William Morris Agency is on the phone. Within a year, we were in the top tax bracket. We'd been in the business for 10 years, Williams said. If I had known what was going to happen, I'd have put that dress on years ago. Well, the two original actors, as well as the productions of themselves, have garnered dozens of awards and just a cornucopia of critical acclaim. And after Greater Tuna, that was followed by A Tuna Christmas, 
red, white, and tuna, and tuna does Vegas. They're all hilarious, but I think my personal favorite is a tuna Christmas. And I have probably never laughed as hard at a scene in a play than the first time that I saw the last scene of a tuna Christmas. And I'm gonna quote some lines here, just warning ahead of time, I'm quoting these lines verbatim. But in the last scene, two of Tuna's uh, better known citizens find themselves as the only two people who have shown up for the local Christmas party at the local uh, radio station. So Arliss Struvy is a local radio DJ who went through years ago a devastating divorce from his ex-wife, Trudy. Bertha Bumiller is a long-suffering wife of truck driver and serial philanderer Hank Bumiller. And so those two sitting alone together, Arliss offers to drop just a dollop of whiskey there in Bertha's punch from his flask, and she declines saying, I'm a Baptist. Arliss responds, well, I'm a Baptist too, but whenever I go to town or a convention or on business or such, I tell folks I'm a Methodist and I have myself one hell of a time. One time we raised so much hell in Houston, I claimed to be an Episcopalian. I don't remember much about it. By the time I came to, I was back in Tuna and feeling like a Baptist again. Bertha responds, Episcopalian. I wouldn't have the nerve to do that for even one night. And Arliss responds, even Baptists should sin once in a while. That's what church is for. Do you want to dance? And so Bertha hesitates again, citing her Baptist faith. And then the last line of the play goes, why not? I've always wondered what it felt like to be a Methodist. And of course, one of the reasons I, it was a hilarious scene, and of course I find it particularly funny because it plays on these distinctions that we have between Baptist and Methodist and Episcopalians, or at least the distinctions between the, uh, the popular stereotypes of Baptist, Methodist, and Episcopalians. Well, Methodist and Baptist, especially in Texas, have always had kind of a, a love-hate relationship. And I think this mainly stems from the history of the westward expansion of our country. In almost every new town and village as each state and territory opened up, it was always the Baptist and the Methodist or the Methodist and the Baptist that showed up first. They organized the first congregations, they built the first church buildings. And for most of the 19th century, the Methodists were winning. But um, eventually in this friendly competition, the Baptists began to outnumber us. Now recall that while Catholics make up 20% of the U.S. population, Southern Baptists are the largest of the Protestant denominations with over 16 million members or 5.3% of the population. And United Methodists come in second with about seven and a half million members, which represents 3.6% of the population. Now, in addition to Southern Baptists, other major Baptist bodies in the United States include the more moderate to progressive Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and American Baptist churches, as well as the historically black National Baptist Convention and the Missionary Baptist. And there's a whole slew of other smaller Baptist bodies as well. 
Now, both Methodists and Baptists can trace their roots back to Britain and to the Church of England. Now, last week, we explored the Church of England, or as it is and its descendants are also known by as either the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church. Now, in the 16th and 17th centuries, as the Anglican Church was being established, it tried to find this middle way between Roman Catholicism and Calvinist Reformation theology. And they tried to find this middle way by combining moderate Calvinist theology with the rich liturgical worship style of the Catholics. Many in England, however, were very frustrated by the Anglican Church, thinking it had not gone nearly far enough in reforming itself from its Catholic past, and they sought a church that had been purified of Roman influences, and thus these people became known as Puritans. Now, just as the name Methodist was originally a pejorative term, so was the term Puritan, but nonetheless it stuck and it caught on. The Puritans were also known as dissenters or nonconformists. Some were referred to as non-separatists, they refer, they, excuse me, they prefer to remain in the Anglican Church and try to change it from within. And then there were the uh, separatists who left to form their own churches. Now, two other groups among the Puritans who did choose to separate from the Church of England also included the Pilgrims, which play a part in American history, and also the Baptists. Both Pilgrims and Baptists were considered so radical that they were persecuted by both the Anglican Church and by the more moderate Puritans. And this led to what is still a very strong traditional conviction in Baptist theology of a belief in religious freedom and the separation of church and state. Well, up till now, each of the denominations and branches of the Christian family tree that we have been exploring have all practiced infant baptism. Uh, early understandings of baptism in the Christian church uh, looked to uh, circumcision as the precursor to baptism, and circumcision among the ancient Israelites was practiced on infants at eight days of age. It was felt like that both circumcision and now baptism was a sign of the covenant and a sign of grace that was extended by God uh, to the people. Now, while there are no specific examples of infant baptism in the Bible, there are descriptions of entire households being baptized at one time, households which presumably would have included children. But remember from previous discussions that more radical Protestants were generally of the opinion that only those things that were explicitly described in the New Testament should become normative practice for the church. And so looking at the example of baptism of repentance that was administered by John the Baptist, these radical Protestants argued that infants were incapable of repentance and were therefore unsuitable candidates for baptism. Those who opposed infant baptisms were called anapetabaptists. You might see the, the root of pedo, which means it's the same root as pediatrics, referring to children. But Anapetabaptist just became Baptist for, for short. And because they will only baptize someone who has made a personal confession of faith, 
These baptisms are called believers' baptisms. Well, the modern Baptist movement started when John Smith, a former Anglican clergyman and a confirmed separatist, rebaptized every member of his entire congregation in the year 1609. Now, what I find very ironic is these very first Baptist baptisms were actually done by the method of pouring, or uh, sometimes called effusion, the pouring of water over the head of each baptizan, and they were not baptisms by full immersion, which is usually insisted upon by most Baptist church, uh, churches nowadays. Well, these early Baptists were further divided into general Baptists, who, like Methodists, believed that Christ died for all people and that Christ's death was effective for all who choose to, uh, to repent and place their faith in Christ. And there were also particular Baptists who, like Calvinists, believed that Christ had died only for the predestined elect. And this fundamental disagreement of what we would now call Arminianism and Calvinism is still a source of great debate in Baptist theology. There are several other characteristics that define the Baptist movement. The early Baptists saw their movement as an attempt not only to purify the church, but to recreate the church as it existed in New Testament times. It is for this reason that there are some Baptists uh, that refuse to see their uh, origin as being from the Church of England or from John Smith. They see the origin of their church as going back to that first Sunday of Pentecost. They're trying to recreate the original apostolic church as it existed in New Testament times. Therefore, because of this, they sought to eliminate all the elements of Catholicism from their churches. No, uh, no acolytes, no processionals, candles, seasons, colors, pyramids, or vestments. They even did away with the altar and replaced the altar instead with, with a pulpit that would then occupy center place there in the church. Any kind of symbolic actions or gestures, such as crossing oneself, those were eliminated and forbidden, in fact. And in some churches, they even stopped uh, the recitation of the Lord's Prayer because they saw it as being nothing more than just a rote recitation that didn't really come from the heart. Instead of the Mass or the Eucharist or Holy Communion being the central focus of worship, it was replaced by extended preaching and testimony. Uh, now called the Lord's Supper, the sacred meal was not seen as a sacrament that conveyed the grace of God, but simply as a memorial meal commemorating Christ's death. And often in many Baptist churches, uh, almost ceased to be practiced at all, and still in many Baptist circles remain, remains a rather infrequent ritual uh, that does not have necessarily a lot of meaning for its members. Another characteristic of the Baptist movement is a high emphasis placed on Scripture. Now, while there are Baptists that can be described as moderate or even progressive in theology, most Baptists would be described as conservative or sometimes even fundamentalist in their theology. Many ascribe to the belief that the Bible is inerrant. That is, the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. In inerrancy, 
It is believed that the Bible, for the, for the Bible to be considered trustworthy, fully trustworthy, then it must be without error in all areas, even when speaking to areas such as history or science. Many believe in a specific type of doctrine called verbal plenary inspiration. And this is the belief that God directly inspired each and every single word of Scripture, at least as it is found in the original manuscripts. I might add, by the way, that we don't have any of the original manuscripts of any of the biblical books. Uh, some even extend this to God, they extend God's divine inspiration to include even the preservation and transmission and translation of Scripture, though, through the ages. Well, as most of you would be aware, the doctrines of inerrancy and verbal plenary inspiration are not Methodist beliefs. Methodists welcome the insights of history and science and believe that in addition to Scripture, tradition and experience and reason serve as both norse, uh, sources and norms of doctrine and theology. What Methodists do believe is that Scripture does have primacy out of our quadrilateral of Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and that Scripture contains all that is necessary for our salvation. And there is no belief or action that is required for salvation that can be found outside of Scripture. Well, despite our differences of theology and doctrine, I do believe that there are things that we can take from our Baptist brothers and sisters that, that can enhance our own spiritual journey. Now, while I might disagree on how to interpret the Bible, I do greatly respect the Baptist dedication to regular reading and study of the Bible, both in the church and individually and in the Christian home. They read the Bible both individually and collectively. I often say that the average Baptist is going to be more biblically literate than the average Methodist, at least in terms of being more familiar with the content of the Bible, uh, more able to locate specific verses or specific stories in the Bible, and being able to recite more scripture from memory. On the other hand, I would um, affirm that the average Methodist, because of their exposure to our Wesleyan quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, is going to be the better interpreter of Scripture. They'll be better able to integrate scriptural precepts with insights from other areas of human knowledge. But imagine, just for a moment, just imagine how great it would be if we combined the strengths of Baptists and the strengths of Methodists in our study of the Bible. If a Christian was deeply committed to the regular reading and study of the Bible, intimately aware of the content of the Bible and able to quote verses in Scripture at length, but also interpret it with nuance and sophistication. Wouldn't that be great? As I've said before, while Christians may have deep disagreements over biblical interpretation, there is one thing that we all agree on, Methodist, Baptist, pretty much all of us, and that is when we are willing to read and wrestle with Scripture, we will meet God there. Scripture is holy ground 
where we can have an encounter with the divine. Another thing I think Methodists could learn about from Baptists is the importance of evangelism. If we truly believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, then naturally we're going to want to share that good news with others. But as I've also said before, sometimes we Methodists hold back out of our abject fear of being mistaken for a Baptist. We don't want to be offensive or intrusive or overbearing. And for the most part, that's actually a good thing. Uh, bad evangelism can sometimes actually be much worse than no evangelism at all. But that doesn't mean that we can't do evangelism in the, excuse me, evangelism in the Methodist Church in a way that is true to who we are. Just think about it. There are so many unchurched people out there who are not at all aware that there are even that there even exists moderate to progressive interpretations of Christianity. They they don't know that there are churches where women can be pastors, where LGBTQ folks are welcome, and where questioning what you've just always blindly accepted can be considered a genuine spiritual practice. These are great strengths that we have that we can share. And as I have also sometimes said, even liberals need Jesus, just as well as conservatives. And finally, we may feel that Baptists may place too much emphasis sometimes on accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. We Methodists may not always emphasize enough that there is, in fact, a personal dimension of choice in our Christian commitment. Just because we were raised in the church or in a Christian family doesn't make us Christians. There comes a time in every person's life when we must make that choice for ourselves to become a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. We must decide to kind of own the covenant for ourselves. That then includes the ability then to articulate our individual faith stories or as a Baptist might say, to be able to offer up our testimony, to offer our witness to the gospel, to tell the story of what God has done in our lives, or as the hymn says, we'll tell the story how we've overcome. Now, I can't guarantee that the Baptists of Tuna, Texas, are going to have any more fun as a Methodist or even as an Episcopalian. But whether one is a Baptist or a Methodist or an Episcopalian, Taking the message of Scripture and the vows that we make at our baptism or that have been made in our names, taking these things seriously will lead to a renewal of faith that speaks a testimony to the world that is still in desperate need of hearing just a little good news. Amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that you can always find a recording of our service. You can find that on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org or on our church podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. 
Any of you that want to contact me or have some questions about our church, you can always message us through our Facebook page. Your action item for this week. Give some thought this week, not only to praying about Trinity like I just asked you to, but to think about how you would testify to what God has done in your life. Think about that this week. And now accept this benediction. Go now in the strength of your baptism, ready to testify to a hurting world, the power of God, to tell the story of how we've overcome. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Love your neighbor. Go in peace. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us next Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we'll be exploring the Pentecostal Church as we continue our sermon series, exploring the different branches and denominations of the church in Christianity's family tree. If you can't join us live, you can always listen to the recording of our service. You'll find that on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.